0: everyone and welcome to the everything else show i call it that because it's everything else besides what you usually see me on and it's uh, things that interest me i was contacted by um, uh, i believe a publicist for vice uh, that connected me to our guest tonight becky ferrera and she is going to be talking about the possibilities of life on europa i'm excited to have her on and helping me out co-hosting t- tonight is mark d'antonio an astronomer and uh, a frequent guest of the show. So, Becky, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for being here. And here is Mark D'Antonio. <laughs> Hello there. Thanks, so, Martin. Hi, Becky. How are you?
1: <laughs> good. How are you, Mark?
0: Fine. Thanks. Becky, so how and how did you get interested in this topic to begin with? I mean, in general, how did you become a science writer? And, and was it your lifelong search of uh science and would that always interest you
1: yeah sort of i mean uh like probably a lot of people i i watched the original cosmos uh with carl Ooh. sagan and i kind oh, of yeah. it started percolating then i really enjoyed just the presentation of the science in that and um i i you know i when i went to college i tried doing a couple scientific fields but i kind of was like i i can't decide on this and it was much easier to just be a writer where you can kind of just hop into the scientific worlds of, uh, people who are doing often like extremely niche research and, um, then just hop out of it, you know? So I just really enjoyed being able to kind of, um, you know, just phone up or talk Mm -hmm. over email with people and, um, and share their stories and, uh, meant that I didn't have to decide if I wanted to be an astronomer or a paleontologist or a geophysicist or whatever. (laughs) You can kind of be everything when you're a science writer.
0: Oh, I bet. I bet. And how do you, uh, how do you back up like sources and things like that? I mean, do you have to do a lot of research when you're doing this type of thing? I'm going to pull up your article uh, also here as we are talking.
1: Well, I find that's one of the nice things about being a science writer. I mean, with this, for this article, for instance, I think I only spoke to the lead author. Often it would, you know, with, it's, it's fun to, you know, talk to a lot of people in the field, but that, you know, that can take a lot more time. So, Um, But one of of the nice things about this is that it's kind of pre-vetted a lot of the time, right? That um, this was published in Nature Communications, so it was peer-reviewed. And so so a lot of the kind of vetting is done already. Uh, If you want to get really deep into a topic, talk to a bunch of sources, that can be really great because you often, I mean, practically always get some lovely debate between the scientists about either nuances or just like the main story. Um, but uh but yeah, mainly I just I will always talk to the lead, ask what they think. And honestly, like one of the nice things again about being a science writer is that they'll like volunteer the limitations of their study. That's something you don't get with like politics mm-hmm. or entertainment or anything like that. So um yeah.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, you know, this is this has always fascinated me. I heard something about the possibility of life on Europa, this particular article that you wrote and um, you know i mean just uh, we talked a little bit off air and just the pure the gravity of jupiter just causes the moons that what we know is the galilean moons or i know they started out as the medici stars or something like that um you know way back their first name something like that but the four moons that we see mm-hmm. going around jupiter are and this one appears to be um ice ice covered up to i believe was it 15 miles or something like that or um I, I don't know the details i know it's something like yeah. 600 million miles away and you know so it's not going to get solar energy from from the sun as far as life goes
1: yeah no it's a it's a fascinating moon and you mentioned like it's got it's got interesting history too, um observed by galileo and is like very much a part of Kind of discovering our own solar system, watching these you know moons orbit Jupiter was kind of a tip off that um, we might be orbiting the sun, for instance. And then Voyager took these amazing—the uh, Voyager mission in the 80s took these amazing shots of it, and it's very clearly an ice moon. There's a range of estimates for how thick the shell is, going up to like 100 kilometers, but um, it's the smoothest body, uh, major body in the solar system. It's very looks like it's being replenished um, by this uh, possible geological cycling with the with the ocean that's underneath it. And one of the things that I, I think is great about it, even though it's just the size of the moon, more or less, just a little bit smaller, um, the estimates, the models for this subsurface ocean, uh, it could be two to three times as much water in there as all the oceans on Earth. So mm-hmm. Small, but mighty, I think, um, in terms of that. And then, you know, uh, I know Mark knows quite a lot about the, the the tidal flexing issue on that and the kind of interesting sources of energy that could be in there. So I definitely would love to hear his thoughts on that as well.
0: Yeah, go ahead, Mark. This is an image from the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. from the Voyager, which yeah, those, is amazing. Just those, amazing. Those long lines you see are like fissures uh,
2: and and when the ice cracks and refreezes, which happens rather quickly because it's, it's of course very cold at the surface. um, The Brown color is actually that stuff welling up from those cracks. And uh, Europa has this particular interesting, uh, particularly interesting uh, feature on it. That's called freckles. Um, And there are these Brown spots that appear. They look like age spots. Okay. Uh, But they're actually these Brown upwellings from the interior. And that, that, stuff inside europa is really the most important thing to study and we have to get a lot closer we have to actually uh, get that europa clipper mission out there Mm. uh, because we need to get to this moon and figure out what's going on in the interior we can guess right becky knows this i'm sure we can guess what's inside europa we can guess at the thickness of the ice mantle we can guess at the internal temperatures we kind of have an idea uh, but everything is a model, and there's no specific data other than what we see visually in the imagery and in some of the the uh, upwellings that have made its way into the uh, exosphere, the area around the moon. Okay, uh, the atmosphere on Europa is exceedingly thin; it's just a, a, a few particles per million of of uh, material that we would like to see. Right? I mean, we know that there's water. Uh, there and we know that Europa like Enceladus at Saturn is spewing some water from time to time and that's very promising right i mean you know, you know, you, i think you, i think you wrote about that becky i'm not sure um but it's just a a moon i think that really uh, takes the cake for me it this is this is the place to go man
1: mhm
0: um so so becky uh, have you uh thought about what a mission would look like to find the life on Europa. I mean they'd have to drill yeah. down through I mean, isn't there a movie about that? I think there's
1: Yeah, Europa <laughs> Report. Yeah, it yeah.
0: was a great movie. <laughs> yeah. It was
1: fun. Um, yeah. yeah, no, and and um, it's a challenging uh, moon to explore as as you as you uh, referenced already, the radiation Jupiter is really intense, so that makes it really hard to have a spacecraft survive there for very long. And there's, you know, and as as Mark mentioned, like basically don't know much about how the surface is. So, planning a lander that's gonna be going on this terrain, it's you know, it's it's a difficult um, thing to do. So, NASA already has a mission, um, the Europa Clipper, that's supposed to launch, I think, 2025, that will just be doing flybys to kind of, you know, it, it will be trying to assess habitability, but I think a lot of it is trying to assess how you would actually land on it. And um, then you mentioned this, of course, huge challenge of actually getting into that subsurface ocean. That's probably, I would say, decades in the future because you'd need, I think, a lander to go there first and kind of assess the scene and then maybe get uh, some kind of heat driven probe that can get into the ocean. There's definitely like concepts like submarines and things like that that are really, Fun to look at, but it, it it does pose this immense challenge. But that's one of the things that was exciting about that study that I covered in that article is that they um, they're speculating that perhaps there is um, shallow water pools, possibly even just within a mile of the surface of Europa, that um, could uh, would be protected from the radiation of Jupiter and um, and that could potentially host like little. I don't know microbes or something like that probably not the kind of space whales or anything that you (laughs) like to see in science fiction but um but that's what's so exciting is that not only would that be uh something that would kind of if these sills these little pools of water existed that would kind of hint more that it's habitable it would also just make it way simpler if you know a lander could then go and and possibly drill just a little bit down and maybe they wouldn't find like intact microbes but maybe like some dna sequence se- sequenceable stuff like some some fragments um and that would be uh, obviously like that <laughs> it would change everything to be able to discover something like that
2: yeah, yeah i mean even a, for- go ahead kind of, oh sorry one of the things too becky which i think uh is is important and you probably know this too um is that when you have an isolated ecosystem like that, they have to set up their own carbon cycles and mm. other cycles that that work to sustain themselves. What brings us the, the reason that I think life could exist on Europa is is two reasons. Number one, uh, our hydrothermal vents have these microcosmic microcosms, okay, of ecosystems that uh, die out as soon as that hot spot migrates away. Under the under the uh, plate, the second one is Lake Vostok. Say no more. Where's Lake Vostok? Lake Vostok's Antarctica, and mm-hmm. it's over 11,000 feet under the ice of Antarctica. Yet it has over 3,500 species of microbial life, and most importantly, that lake again, which you already know. Sorry for repeating what you already know. Uh, that lake, uh, and I'll say it tomorrow. You know that lake has its own cycles that it's set up to process carbon and other uh, uh chemistry that
0: goes on there and it's all chemosynthetic life like we're looking for i think that's great okay so let's explain to the average listener out there what chemo centric, centric life is i mean we're it's it's on chemicals not sun-based energy is that correct yeah you, you know what it is right Chem- chemical A- reaction or chemical something
1: Yeah, and well, in in particular, the hydrothermal vent systems is is kind of interesting as well because it's a big theory about how life got started on Earth. Um, Obviously, life was not as habitable or the the planet wasn't as habitable four billion years ago, odd um, years ago. So uh, one possibility is that hydrothermal vents in the ocean could have been a way for life to emerge, and that would be exciting um, because that would extend the habitable zones and other systems. We're discussing that, uh, you know, like it's habitable zones are usually calculated by the the sun's energy. But if you have these kinds of systems that are isolated in deep oceans, which we still do on earth, um, then, you know, it's really, maybe you, there's there's been speculation that rogue planets without a star could potentially have uh, life in their course because of that or, or close yeah. to their.
2: Um, yeah. I, their I agree with that. I agree with so, that. Yeah. There's a lot of really uh, interesting theories there, you know, and I uh, see the nice thing. This is why, uh, this is why I love astronomy. Okay. Because there's so many unknowns.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All
2: right. Becky knows she's, she's having a good time writing about it.
0: I'm sorry, Martin. Go ahead.
2: Yeah.
0: It's your show. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, uh, You you grabbed my attention, Mark, so I lost my train of thought. (laughs) But uh, let's see. Okay, I know what it was. That is, uh, doesn't all life, though, I mean, isn't it the energy, uh, say the big, I've heard this, and and Mark or or Becky, either one of you uh, can comment on this, that they speculate that when the Big Bang or whatever it was that actually happened, that all the energy that ever will be was created then and energy just changes form. It doesn't go away or, or something like that. Am I getting that totally wrong? Uh, That's, that's
2: conservation of energy. Um, And, and you know, on an earth-based system. Okay. We can apply it to that as well. But um, you got to remember that when a star is formed out of hydrogen gas, that's the first thing we get, right? It's the most dominant element in the whole universe. Right. Well, when that happens, the star makes its own energy, right? So we actually have a lot of other energy sources in the universe. Now, clearly there was some beginning energy that it all started from, right? And it's unclear to me uh, how the very beginning operated versus where we are now. Uh, In fact, cosmologists can't give you a proper answer to that either, So that's sort of a question that will have for me has to remain open. I don't know if uh, anybody has any ideas.
0: Go for it. I'm willing to listen. (laughs) But okay, and here's so does life life can exist without any initial source of energy from a sun? Is that is that correct?
1: That, is that uh, Mark? That's chemosynthesis there. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's that's the chemosynthetic and, process that, that right in the the, chemosy- the chemosynthetic process had nothing to do with energy from any sun at any given point historically. Correct. It, it's it's
2: life based on a eco a place where there was no life. Okay, fostered the growth of bacteria that ate the hydrogen sulfide minerals that are welling up from these black smokers, these hydrothermal vents. Okay, whatever you want to call them, they, they have a bunch of names. Okay, chimneys, sulfide chimneys, uh, and those bacteria uh, fostered more animals that wanted to eat the bacteria. Filter feeders like big giant clams, the size of your head. Okay, mm-hmm. and beyond, and tube worms that have this this uh, this amazing
0: five foot length. You ever see a worm five feet long? Go to I've the seen portion. I've seen those tube worms on yeah you know, some documentary they're bizarre yeah, yeah they are
2: yeah so they foster different kinds of life and different types of crustaceans that have been down there i actually have a black smoker section over in the other end of my office here oh my that they, i got from woods hole oceanographic institution because i used to be up there all a lot because i'm i've i've been in the album but not in it when it was diving okay so i was in the surface with it and get to know the scientists and so forth did presentations up there but this these these concepts are just fundamental as becky said to the formation of life on our planet i, I i'm with that 100 percent.
0: oh so becky what what about enceladus um Sat- saturn's moon what is the difference between europa and enceladus i know the size difference
1: there yeah enceladus is very small um but uh one of the nice differences is that Enceladus would be potentially a lot easier to study um because it does have these plumes that it shoots out uh into space and um, though Europa does that ha, does have those as well, it would be a lot easier to just send a spacecraft one through. In fact I think the Cassini orbiter already did that. Um, it just wasn't equipped to actually look for life in those plumes. So if there is life uh, inside Enceladus, which has a very similar you know uh, makeup in terms of what they think is inside there compared to, to Europa, it's just on a very very much smaller scale then, you know, it could be blowing that life out into space, which would be a really easy way to get it. Don't have to land at all. So yeah. there's actually, I'm, I'm based in Ithaca. And at Cornell, there is a there's a, um, a scientist, Jonathan Lunin, who is working to try to get a mission called Enceladus Life Finder um, out to out there. And I, it's one of my just like favorite kind of mission concepts, because it just seems like it would be one of those things that would be fascinating to check. And you know, uh, we already have the proof of concept that you can go through those plumes. And, um, yeah, why not?
0: Now, the plumes no. on Europa are, are smaller and possibly not from the depth of through the ice. Is that yeah. what, what's the difference? I,
1: I actually don't know. I, I've, I've read a little bit of controversy on those on the plumes. And like, so, Mark, do you want to take that one? Because I think, you know, a little bit more about them.
2: I, I saw the Hubble imagery of the plumes taken with the Hubble Space Telescope looking at Europa uh, and there was definitely hydrogen and oxygen in these plumes. So uh, that was part of the reason that they were so dead set on thinking that there's probably an ocean underneath the uh, icy crust. But you got to understand, every one of the Galilean satellites, uh, except for Io, right? we have Io, we have Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. Well, Ganymede and Callisto are also ice moons. And these can also have potential oceans beneath. I just don't think that, uh, that we've studied those as much as we have Europa and Ganymede's the biggest moon in the entire solar system. Yeah. You know?
1: Bigger than Mercury, right?
2: Yeah. Um, it's a huge, huge moon.
1: There is a really interesting mission, uh, which the acronym is juice. I can't remember what the, <laughs> what it stands for, but it's from the Euro- European space agency that is going specifically to see Ganymede. It will do some, um, it will do some flybys of Europa too, so it might be able to characterize that. But I, I think Ganymede is like one of the most underestimated bodies in the solar system for that reason. Because I agree. Does, yeah, it's it's the largest moon, and it certainly has um, the potential for habitability as well. Um, yeah. so that will be a really interesting mission. I think. I think that's supposed to arrive sometime this decade. Or yeah. Anyway, that,
2: that's that stands for Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. Okay. I'm not a genius. I looked it up.
0: Oh, oh <laughs> I thought I didn't know if you were joke. He has a sense of humor. So I didn't know if that was a joke or it is. It's Jupiter. Icy moons Explorer.
1: There okay.
0: you go. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> and yeah.
1: until,
2: until you mentioned it, Becky, I didn't know that they were doing this. I, I, I knew about the Europa Clipper. Mm-hmm. I know that Europa Clipper was actually a two phase mission. One's a flyby and then one deposits a lander. Now the Juno mission currently at, at Jupiter, right? Going over the South North poles, right? Unprecedented views. Well, they're going to crash it into Jupiter's atmosphere at the conclusion, and you know this, but Martin may not, but it's it's to actually prevent contamination on Europa should something mm-hmm. ever happen, and it ends up crashing onto Europa. So you see, we're thinking about this Star Trek non-directive, in the Star Trek directive, right? Uh, non-interference. I mean, it's almost like that, but we're actually, you know, art imitates life sometimes, right?
1: I think actually there are plans for the Europa lander should it ever come to pass to like self-destruct as well (laughs) to try to, because I mean, it's, it's a huge problem, that planetary protection kind of um, issue. Um, And it's something that they're doing with Mars right now, because obviously like there's all these really exciting places on Mars that you want to go to, but you don't want to land your craft there that might have earth life on it, contaminate it, or of course, backward contamination, bring Mars life back to earth, which is true. um, but yeah, so uh, I think that there's there's been like some loosening of of just like the rules on that because eventually we're gonna have to explore those places. Um, yeah. And but if for, for the most part, like it it has been kind of this, uh, you know, I think we're kind of dipping our toe in, so to speak, of these uh, these environments where there are real planetary protection concerns because we're you know life on Earth, as you mentioned, with Lake Vostok and things like that. Life on Earth is really good at surviving where we've got some extremophiles. So they're going to, you know, it's hard to kill them on the spacecraft. Yeah,
2: that's right. And and in addition, right, I mean, we have to really be careful with Europa because uh, Arthur Clark uh, warned us away from it. All these worlds are yours except Europa. Attempt no landing there. Use the others together. Use them in peace. Remember that final message from uh, from?
1: 2010, was it? Oh, really? That's so fun. Yeah,
2: yeah which oh, I thought was kind of one. cool. Yeah, you got to look it up. It's really cool, you know. Um but see what I'm getting at though is back then even people recognized there might be life on Europa. Back when that movie when he wrote that.
0: Okay. Uh, this is a and, quote by him up there. <laughs> I like Yeah, Totally. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> Two
0: <laughs> yeah, possibilities yeah. exist love either we one. are alone in the universe or not both are equally terrifying.
2: Yeah, and that that's, that's like yeah. Seth Shostak saying, you know, um if uh if there if we're a, how do you say it if we're alone in the universe that'd be a miracle okay but there was another corollary to that too which i can't remember uh, yeah. i use it in my book actually it's it's really um true
0: you know if there is no life that's a miracle that's what it was yeah yeah, yeah, totally. yeah. yeah. here's a question uh, i'm not aware of this uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts this is becky or mark opinion on nasa finding life on nasa finding life on titan we're yeah, looking for life.
1: Yeah, that's finding there is a mission that right? in the works right now. I think it's called Dragonfly that they're going to uh, send to Titan. I, I think Titan, if if I mean, I, I don't know. It's one of the most exciting worlds in that in this way because it is so strange. It's so it's you know the 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 liquid oceans are made of methane and hydrocarbons and things like that. So if we were to find signs of life on on that world, I mean, it would be have to be such a different type of of like system, it would be so fascinating. It, I don't even know how you would recognize it, but it is, it is very much like, I believe it has the densest atmosphere of any, anything except for earth uh, in, in the, any any rocky world anyway. And yeah. so I, th- I think it's really like an uh, exciting mission to go out there. And, and one of the things, one of the missions that I love, cassini huygens Cassini of course went on for many years after the Huygens probe landed on Titan. But yeah. it's always, like, kind of forgotten, I feel like, that we did this amazing landing on Titan. And we have these incredible pictures of what a yeah, the whole novel.
2: descent camera.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it no. was just, you know, it was... I think uh, it's the only outer solar system landing <clears> that we've done yet. So it's a really big Pathfinder. Um, I'm, I'm personally a big Neptune fan. I hope we get a Triton lander out there at some point, too, speaking of weirdly oh, yeah. habitable places. But, um, yeah, what, what are your thoughts, Mark?
2: Uh, my feeling is that first of all, uh, the dragonfly land. The reason they're calling it dragonfly, I think, is because it has propellers. It's going to fly, uh, and I think that I think I'm right about it. I may may not be right about that, but we have to see. Um, uh, but you know, with there it is that's the uh, is that the okay, Titan. That's pictures of Titan. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On the way down. Yeah, but the the thick atmosphere on Titan. It seems like it's also uh, has some weather. But it probably is a pretty stagnant weather system. But these these liquid ethane lakes are just, uh, you know, you think, well, nothing can survive at those temperatures, you know, way below zero. Uh, I beg to differ. Uh, You're not going to find fish, okay, flying around in there, okay, or swimming around. But you're definitely going to find some potential microbes.
1: Mm-hmm. You no,
2: know? and I think that that's a, a i think it's a wonderful idea for a mission. I don't know if it'll ever get off the ground because you know how NASA is with funding sometimes the funding's there and next year it's not you know yeah is that yeah. one of the lakes so-called lakes right there mark in this image and if that's an actual photo that looks like uh it could be a artist rendering, but maybe oh, it's not okay. i mean it does it All does look right. like a rendering, but it would be an ethane lake yeah which is a very you know uh fancy hydrocarbon.
1: And then I think um, there's also theories that Titan itself might also have a liquid water subsurface ocean. So there's like oh. multiple layers of, <laughs> of potential habitability there.
2: That's right. That's um, right.
1: Oh, it's yeah. a, it's a, even if it's totally inhospitable, what a, what a cool little world that is just not like anything in the solar system. I know.
2: You know, and, and you read Becky, remember the, the, the when the Huygens probe actually sent back that first photograph and that long strip and I'm like, oh, wow. And I just couldn't get the scale. And then they told me that the, they're all pebbles because this camera was right down low, and you're only looking oh, at little pebbles. I didn't
1: realize that. So it's like a very, that's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I know exactly big rocks. To, yeah this very, like, vertical frame picture. Yeah. Yeah. It's
2: I small. thought they were big rocks. and No, they're pebbles. That's <laughs> like, oh, you know, I wanted rocks, you know, but that's okay. I thought it was pretty cool. Oh, I, I think just like it just
1: taking photos on that kind of hazy, like, smog world. Like, it's, it's, yeah. It would be really interesting yeah. to see what they do with the next mission. Yeah. I hope it does oh, get yeah. up
2: there.
0: Me too. Me too. So and we the, always go, go ahead. ahead. No, sorry, Mike, go ahead. Yeah, no, we always uh, often we think of, you know, we're looking at planets out there that are in the habitable zones and stuff like that. But but there could be moons as well out there in these solar systems that there that could be habitable. Matter of fact, yeah. there's no way to tell whether there could be um, intelligent life that evolved on a moon. I mean, that sounds bizarre. But it's mm-hmm. it's a it's it's a planet in a type of way, you know. I mean, it just depends on, you know, what happens to happen there. But does it, Mark? Maybe I don't know if you know this any, uh, if you know this in particular. But does like any type of planetary body have to have certain things to make it work? And you got to think about, um, it's got to have a magnetosphere, right, to keep yes. the radiation out, or it'll kill life as we know it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, the magnetosphere—the magnetic field
2: around a planet—traps the solar wind. The solar wind then gets trapped in the magnetosphere, spirals around. That's the source of you know the Van Allen radiation belts here. That's actually just our solar particle trapped, you know, uh, magnetosphere. So that's what the Van Allen belts are. And Mars used to have one, but it sort of died away, which means that Mars ended up still exuding a lot of water molecules which got broken apart the oxygen went into the surface where it bonded with iron compounds and rusted mars which is why it's red okay and then the uh, the hydrogen got lost to space right well that was a significant amount of that planet's atmosphere right so uh we gotta we have to look at what goes into making a planet habitable you know and i'm sure becky knows this as well and it, it when you look at a planet, it has to be in that habitable zone where we can have liquid water. Why? Because we survive. We are genesis of liquid water. So we say, well, maybe liquid water is a good place to start. And since we know that life originated in the oceans, we figure that if water exists, potentially life exists. You know, the planet makes amino acids. They were delivered the building blocks of life. They were delivered by meteors and comets and everything throughout history. So over time. Our planet built these these building blocks of life all by itself, and from visitors from afar. And this led to life here, right? And it gives Becky and I lots of things to talk about.
1: <laughs> Indeed, it does. It does.
2: Well, uh. Yeah,
1: just like the fact that you were mentioning these chemosynthetic organisms earlier. Maybe they don't need the sun, but they certainly need water. <laughs> you they know, like water they is yeah, the, the magic yeah. ingredient for sure. So, but but water does not have to be in the habitable zone necessarily, uh, liquid water on the surface, maybe. But as we've been talking with Europa, Enceladus, Titan, all these worlds are, potentially have subsurface water. Yeah,
2: yeah. And, and again, like when you were talking about uh, with your article, especially when you talked about Enceladus a little earlier, you know, uh, Saturn's moon Dione, okay, mm-hmm. is doing a tug of war with Enceladus. So, Enceladus is doing this. I actually demonstrated that for. One oh, on Earth, on uh, I think it was TLC for once in a while, and actually I covered a balloon with this this plastery material, and I started squeezing it to show how uh, Enceladus flexes, and then it generated the fissures at the South Pole that you could see the the you know potential stuff coming out of those those vents, and. So when you have that that squishing going on by that constant tugging between Saturn and Dione, I mean this this almost looks oddly satisfying, doesn't it? you can just feel it. <laughs> it's, you can almost see the kneading process right going on, you know, in the moon, and that kept the interior warm. Okay, even more than its 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 nuclear particles that might be in the center keeping it warm from its original formation, right? So that kneading process is what made. It makes Enceladus a potential target, and gave it those hydrothermal vents. So the same type of thing could go on in Europa, and I, I'm I'm sure that you know Becky's got an awful lot of writing to do if she hasn't talked about this yet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it's true. There's never there's never uh, any kind of pause in the in the habitability stuff because we're talking, of course, about these wonderful, exciting worlds in our in our own solar system, but, you know, scientists are getting obviously a lot better at looking at life in exoplanets and other systems. And so just, uh, you know, we're still trying to figure out what's going on in the deep subsurface of our planet. Like this is just, life uh, is definitely very tenacious out there.
2: Yeah. Theoretically, I mean, we only got down to Lake Vostok in the last few years, you know, relatively compared to the existence of the human race and the planet. Uh, It's been like the last Snap at a finger that we actually found Lake Vostok. Yeah, didn't really and get there to see this all this life, right? Well, you know, I, I mean, I think and I, I like your your that you're a Neptune
0: fan too, by the way. Yeah, I like that. Oh, that's because- that picture in the background. Yes.
1: Oh, that's a uh, Pangea. So that's oh, oh. Not Pangea. A planet yeah. actually, but just in a different time of our own planet. <laughs> I always like um, to think, think of it as
2: sort of think of Gondwana land
0: there, Martin. Okay, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so is that when you're talking about like chemical energy for for life, um when you say like okay, everything needs to eat, right? And so the eating in some term would be that chemical reaction or energy is that i mean it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a species that would be eating something right or would it
1: it could create an ecosystem i think as as you were mentioning mark with the the tube worms and stuff i, I um yeah i mean you you seem to be much more well versed in the actual chemical <laughs> process uh that's going on in these hydrothermal vents but they seem to be metabolizing minerals right
2: yeah and the thing to keep in mind is that uh, for anything to survive it has to generate energy and to generate energy it has to consume something That Mm -hmm. something may be living it may not be okay and generally uh living things that have dna consume some type of material to produce sugars and to you know continue their lives right and they ingest oxygen in many cases in order to help further that process, keep it going, generate energy, etc. cetera. Um, and like with the DNA process that, that you know, Becky's referring to, uh, you know, we're talking about carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and sulfur, CHOMPS. Okay. That's an acronym. And that's really the basis of DNA. Uh, you have sulfur in your bones and all. So, I mean, we, we have these basic elements here that were generated by our planet, right? And so we and they know that they exist elsewhere and the huge question for me is can we find a similar process at Europa mm-hmm. you know, um I think that's why Martin invited me to uh, talk with you tonight Becky because uh, he knows I'm a big fan of Europa so yeah. I, I yeah
1: no and it's really it's really interesting to hear your insights on the on that as well and um yeah um it, I mean, it's it's a world that is just, like, it's really been so exciting for really hundreds of years, you know? <laughs> yeah, so
2: I, I agree. That's it, really
1: closer to getting there.
2: That's right. Ever so, since Galileo saw these moons, yeah. okay, uh, that's just started the ball rolling to all these additional discoveries, right? Over time, it just got better and better and better. And, you know, the time will come when we'll have a uh, presence on Europa of some type. Okay, uh, just like we have the presence on Mars. Incidentally, I just want to say this. Just and and you could repeat this if you want to, Becky. Mars is the only planet in our solar system entirely populated by robots. You know, <laughs> so I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, as far right. as we know. As far as we know. As
1: far as we know. Yeah. yeah. Maybe some tiny Earth microbes as well. Got them. <laughs> that's
2: right. That's well, that's mm-hmm. yeah.
1: I I did want to quickly just ask though for for both of you if the you know one of the questions I think about alien life that is really I would like to have answered is, is DNA kind of, if there were, if the, if, if alien life does exist, does it rely on DNA? Is DNA something that every, every life form needs? You know, I would, I think it would be so interesting to find something that was different from that.
2: Totally agree with that, Becky. In fact, that's one of the main questions I, I offer proffer up in the book is, you know, we look at our bilateral symmetry, right. And we look at the symmetry of all living things in this planet, whether radial symmetry, like mm-hmm. a tulip, Uh, pentamerism, like a starfish, five-sided symmetry, or our bilateral symmetry. Uh, Incidentally, starfish are bilaterally symmetric as larvae, just for the record. Then they go into this pentamerous state. So that's, you know, so bilateral symmetry is interesting. And, you know, I always ask the question, you look at all the life forms. Why all the symmetry? Why don't we have pogo stick cows? You know, they only have like one leg, right? Why? Well, I think the answer lies in how DNA replicates i'm i'm just a thought okay it unzips and replicates a complementary strand at the macro level that same thing could be responsible for how the human organism interacts we interact through bilateral symmetry with our environment and i think that that's something there's something to be said there we only have one heart but it is it has its own symmetries right we mm-hmm. have one spleen but it has its own symmetries we have one liver but it has its own symmetries and it's but You know, on the, at the outside, we're bilaterally symmetric, you know, right down the middle, you can say, you know, you do a mirror image and you'll probably look nearly the same, you know, Uh, except if you look like this, like when I go, so if I do that, I might look very different when you look in a mirror, right? (laughs) But the point being that that bilateral symmetric uh, design is something that I think because it's prevalent on all life forms and because DNA is present in all life forms on the planet, okay, I think that that's a template that the universe creates. Yeah, some sort of a template, and it, it comes from the basic hydrocarbon amino acids and the building blocks of life that are delivered in the way that those are utilized.
1: That's fascinating. Yeah, I like that. That's my
2: thought, anyway. I mean, I, I I think that it's I think it's along the right track, but you know what? We need more research to show.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah.
0: And there's also isn't there also a thought out there that there could be possible life that silicon based.
2: Okay. Okay. Remember the periodic table that everybody hates in high school? Okay. All right. You have carbon.
1: Oh, I love
2: that table. Me too. Me too. It's like my favorite. I, I, I used to sing that table, by the way. There's hydrogen and helium and lithium. I, I can do it. I'm not going to do it. I promise. Okay. But when we go to carbon, okay, and we look at the carbon atom, you have to keep in mind that that carbon atom, number six, all right, is right above silicon, and the columns represent the most likely elements that are familial to each other. Right, So underneath carbon is silicon, right? Next row down, but that, that, that row, that column, I mean, means more than the row in this particular case. So silicon is the next likely element that could do what carbon does. Carbon is the granddaddy of all elements. It bonds with more things than anything else in the periodic table. And more importantly, it can break those bonds relatively easily. And those bonds can be changed. Look at that. Look at that. Look what he's got there. Okay? Yes, you're right. Um, and the thing about carbon is because it has those four electrons in the outer shell there that can link with four other things, it immediately gives us the, the ability to link with hundreds of thousands of other compounds, make up hundreds of thousands of other compounds, the things that, required, that are required by life. Now, silicon, on the other hand, silicon is – it has more electrons. You say, ooh, wow, silicon might be good, except silicon is tenacious, and it makes bonds that tend to go into crystals. Mm. Mm. And crystals are harder to break apart. And so silicon being so tenacious is not so likely. In fact, I think it is highly unlikely, you know? Uh, but interesting little bit of trivia for you is when you walk on a beach, Martin, mm. you're walking on mostly gas. Silicon really? dioxide. Silicon and two oxygen. So, the majority of the uh, the atoms in a grain of sand are oxygen, not by mass, but just by count. So, I think that's kind of an interesting little bit of trivia. That's
0: and, yeah. I mean, and as far as as far as you now, this may be a real layperson's question, but that's what I am. <laughs> and that is as far as you know. Does life need oxygen that we know of? Some need to get oxygen somehow.
1: I mean, with water um, being kind of the magic ingredient, um, yeah, I like oxygen being part of of that, uh, as far as we know.
0: Oh, as far as the oxygen in in the water, H2O?
1: Right, yeah, Yeah. Um, metabolizing that, Um, Mm -hmm. but... yeah, what are the chemical advantages of oxygen, Mark, for life
2: there? Well, I mean, too much oxygen is an issue, of course. Sure. And uh, one of the problems with Europa, let's go back to Europa for a second. If you have too much oxygen in the waters of Europa, then that could cause some other problems. Now, there is sort of a... Mythos about the fact that if you have too much oxygen, then the water might be too acidic. Well there is really no direct link between oxygen and acidity in the water. but there is a link between carbonate and 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 bicarbonate ions, okay? Carbon dioxide is more of a measure of that pH than the o- ocean than the oxygen would be. But if you have a lot of oxygen, maybe you might have a lot of carbon dioxide dissolved in the water and that could make it more acidic. You know how it is when you – there's an old experiment you did in in, in high school. You blew into a straw, into water, and the water changed color because you had something in the water to change the color. And you said, oh, look, it made carbonic acid, right? Well, that whole process is something we have to be careful about. And that that pH is a measure of acidity. Too much acidity is not good for life as we know it. But there are extremophiles that love acidic water. So you know we can get proven wrong – But you got to look at the flexibility of the niche to support many other types of life forms. And if it's an acidic niche, then that's going to be somewhat limited. Mm. You know, you might get life, but it's going to be somewhat limited. So we have to be careful about too much oxygen, which could result in in possibly too much carbon dioxide. Uh, But oxygen makes fuel for carbon-based, you know, beings like ourselves, Right. We need oxygen to start doing this metabolizing in our in our systems.
0: Here's a question that came in chat, and it is, is it possible that Europa could have intelligent life as smart as dolphins or whales or octopus? As far as we know, those type of uh, beings need to, uh, they need to like eat other beings to survive, right? It's the fish, the big oh, yeah, fish I'm... eats the little fish and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. I think that would be interesting to hear what you have to say about that, Becky. I got my my own
1: ideas. Uh, Also they, I think they're all sunlight uh, dependent to some degree, but, uh, but yeah, um, I I see no reason why not, frankly. I mean, I I think uh, I'm a little, um, I always want to like represent the microbes. I think that they're (laughs) underrated because of course we're we're, we're macro animals and, and you know, um, this question Those are three very charismatic animals, right, that we really relate to, that we know are intelligent, um, Mm -hmm. have relationships, like we can actually communicate with them um, to some degree. So I think it's always like really exciting to bring up those examples. But I just uh, planet Earth, despite the fact that it has complex life on it and we think that we're the big guys here. It's a, it's still a bacterial planet. It's a microbial planet. Still, they're, they're, yeah. they're uh, they were here long before us. They will be here long after us. They take up most of the biomass. It's still their planet. So oh, I, I, right I think, think like, no reason if there's, if there's life, um, if it is a habitable ocean, why not have larger intelligent beings? But um, also, like microbes would be great. That's all.
2: Yeah, I, and I, I will say uh, I, I like that answer very much. And that 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 says it all um so i almost don't have to say it but i think that the octopus i did a whole uh radio show we we have a radio show on KGRA called sky to radio it's an astronomy show on sundays right and we go from 6 to 8 p.m and uh we did a whole show on the octopus mm-hmm. and you say well how does that relate to astronomy oh it really does because we look at how life evolved on the planet all right and it tells us a great deal by looking at the octopus, the octopus, I think, I think is the smartest animal in the ocean. Mm -hmm. I do. It's, it's, it's got, you can, it registers feelings. It has the ability to reason and it has the ability to uh, move itself out of a dangerous situation because it wants to not because it has to. Um, it, It demonstrates choice making, which is something that is different. Most animals in the ocean react to stimuli that say, oh, too hot, too cold. Oh, danger. Move out of the way. The octopus is inquisitive and curious. What's in there? <laughs> you know, what's in there? Uh, and how can I get out of this, this, this maze? Uh, and the octopus could also observe and retain what it saw. I don't know if you heard this study or saw the study. There were two cages underwater. One was just a clear open cage. The other one had uh, access to a set of tubes, which went out and there were, there was a maze that went out to dead ends all over the place. Okay. And finally there was one path, one and only path that led to the outside back to the aquarium. And one octopus was put in this first side on the left side over here. And the other one was put in the other side and did all the probing to find the way out. And when it found the way out, They took the other octopus, put it in, and it went all the way out the first time. It watched and remembered what the first one did. Isn't that something? We can't do that. Yeah. We can't do that. The cuttlefish are
0: pretty. The cuttlefish, are you familiar with those? Those are really smart, too. Mm -hmm. Yes. Very smart. And they're very old.
2: Not, you know, particularly each one, but they're very old evolutionarily on the planet. Hmm. Yeah. The chambered nautilus.
1: Those examples are also great, Martin, too, because, um, you know, speaking of dolphins, whales and apes, of course, they're they're all mammals like us. They're on our branch of the tree. And I think uh, octopuses are so exciting um, and cuttlefish and things like that to have have a truly an intelligence that is not really closely related at all to us. Mm
2: -hmm. Right. Good point. Another thing, too, you know, about dolphins in particular, um, dolphins, like elephants, have a place that they go to die. Hmm. Very interesting. I actually have up there on my shelf, I actually have a dolphin skeleton uh, that came from Cape Verde Islands. And uh, it was given to me by another science writer, actually, from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And this dolphin skeleton was collected on a beach full of tens of thousands of dolphin skeletons. Hmm. And this wasn't from a mass beaching. It's from the location where they all seem to come. Many of them come to die and, and live their last days. Like an uh, elephant graveyard. Like an elephant graveyard, It's a dolphin graveyard. Really fascinating. Mm. Incredible. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, let's uh, let's talk about life, the possibility of life in our solar system, since that's what we're talking about. Um, the places uh, <clears throat> I I believe it was Venus. They thought there pop there was a possibility that there could have been some type of life in the upper atmosphere. Um, I've always wondered if they'll ever find, you know, fossilized microbes, (laughs) say, on Mars with this seems like with all the rovers and things that they have there, that they should be looking into that more than it seems that they do. I mean, anyway, I'm kind of throwing a couple of different topics out there.
2: Becky, what have you done with Venus or Mars? Have you done anything with them?
1: I I love Venus. And there's actually a couple of missions now finally going there. Venus is in style again. This is, you know, very exciting. (laughs) Um, I think there was just a study that came out that was kind of, uh, that refuted a lot of the idea of the microbes in, in the atmosphere, which is sad, of course, but, um, that's science for you. Um, but I think, I think think the Venetian, um, atmosphere is really interesting. It's very, you know, obviously you think of Venus, you think, oh God, (laughs) hellscape nightmare. Don't want to think could live there. But yeah, the atmosphere is this, um, much more mild place and could be really interesting to explore more. And oh. then you mentioned, you know, the rovers on Mars. Um, Perseverance landed last last year. Um, it its its mission is to pick up these samples from this ancient lake bed um, and to like, you know, put them aside so that another another mission can come and send them back to Earth, which would be the first time we'd ever had pristine samples from Mars. Hmm. And um, I, I think I think it would be really fascinating if they obviously if they found fossils there, I mean, there's this whole question of just like finding life and then knowing that it went extinct 4 billion years ago, which is kind of uh, like a a bittersweet thing. But there's also like one of my favorite uh, um, kind of pet speculations, this idea of panspermia, that you could have microbes traveling from planet to planet on Mm -hmm. meteorites. Um, And um, I love this kind of idea that maybe like Mars and Venus were both habitable back in the day in the early days of the solar system. And potentially Earth life comes from one of those and that we're just all descended from Martians or Venusians or whatever, right? Very, very, uh, you know, it's it's wild speculation, but it's just, it's it's a possibility. We do exchange meteorites from these planets. So, yeah.
2: Well, have you heard um, one of the latest findings? Actually, maybe you have, Becky, is that uh, much of the debris disk left over from formation in our solar system, much of this, the small particles of these small particles of dust, were actually created from big impacts on Mars. And oh, I
1: didn't know yeah, that.
2: and many of these, that's the theory. And one of these, uh, I forget who did the study, uh, but of these impacts, right? They're going to blow off lots of stuff, potentially organic molecules into space where they're going to get flash frozen, if not destroyed, and then make their way to earth. And perhaps they, the whole concept of panspermia did occur. Uh courtesy of Mars. And then Mars, right? And then Mars lost its magnetic field. Mars died. Uh the lakes dried up because the water went away. The vapor pressure, the pressure dropped down to six pascals, which is a really tiny, you know, pressure. Okay. And next thing you know, um we live. So it's kind of interesting. Uh it's almost like the Martian population knew they were going to die. So they left Mars and came here, but they were only microbes when they did it. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. It's cool.
0: I see a so, science fiction story. Yeah, <laughs>
1: definitely. Yeah.
0: So Becky, this is your opinion. What do you think would, it would be like if all of a sudden we could say, Hey, we have found life elsewhere. What do you think would change in society? Or do you think nothing would change?
1: Oh, it's so fun, Martin, to get this question because I ask it to a lot of people. So <laughs> it's kind of like one I've always wanted to be asked. But no, I mean, I think it would be um, enormous. And I, I, even if it is just microbes, right? And let's assume that it is, because I think um, I'm much more skeptical about intelligent life being, a being. You know, it's just much more rare. But microbes, I mean, it would mean that uh, another sample set, we could answer that question that we were talking about earlier. Does all life require DNA? Uh, just the nature of it would allow us to know where to look for it in other places. But I think, you know, imagine finding fossils on Mars. That's just like, you know, a planet next door and we're already finding life there. That really kind of implies that it's very common. Um, so I think I think it would just be amazing for that perspective of just, uh, you know, it's it's a natural process like anything else that we see in, in the world. And society, I think, would have a whole bunch of different um reactions to that because we all know we're living in a pretty fractured world but uh overall i think it would just be kind of one of awe and wonder don't you i mean do, finally after this millennia long kind of search to know that we're not alone
0: hmm
2: yeah i i to add um uh, not to throw some fuel on the fire here but the uh, the chinese just announced uh in the last right. couple of days you know this what i'm talking about right
1: yeah yeah
2: yeah <laughs> I don't want to steal your thunder on that if you were going to talk about it. Oh, okay. They just announced that they thought that maybe they found an extraterrestrial signal that was of uh, intelligent origin. Okay. Now, they then rescinded that. Now, let me tell you how that could have happened. It could have been that somebody listening to, say, some type of strange fast radio burst, which we've talked about before, Martin, Mm -hmm. uh, could have said... Uh, wow, this looks like life to me, and they put it out, and then finally when the, in the, the Chinese national uh, media said, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, you, you can't say that. Is this really life? And then other scientists came along and said it might have been a fast radio burst, and so they would have pulled it back. But the, but the outward view is that they announced that life was present, and then the story got quashed. So mm. that leads to all these, right, the, the whole conspiracy world's, you know, going to be up in arms for the next several weeks until it, <laughs> it leaves the news cycle. But it is an interesting concept, isn't it? And that's what's going to happen eventually when we find life or intel- intelligence signals. It's probably going to be from one of these radio telescopes that's paying attention to, you know, something out there that's, that's doing something really
0: exotic. What about the James Webb? Do you think that oh, yeah. could yeah. actually capture something that would tell us more?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think. I think again, um, and I'll just. I just wanted to add one thing. I think is important is that candidates for extraterrestrial intelligence are very common, and it's almost always human interference. Yeah, that's
2: right. <laughs> radio came
1: from us, bounced into the telescope. Yeah. So I think that they kind of like thought like, oh like everyone's paying attention to this and this could just be like someone's cell phone. Um, But, um, (laughs) but uh,
2: exactly what she says.
1: Yeah. (laughs) With James Webb, like um, I I just think it's so exciting because uh, there's definitely, again, the, the techno signature side of it, but what it's going to be really good at is looking at atmospheres of exoplanets. It's telescope. It can um, refine in great detail, the kind of chemical compositions of these planets. So um, I think this is one of the kind of, again bittersweet things about the modern search for uh, extraterrestrial life is that I think the most likely way we'll find it is like okay we have ozone and methane in an atmosphere it looks like life don't know it's 300 light years away (laughs) but that's like our moment of discovery so it's going to be this kind of thing where it's just looking like at how how common these habitable worlds are and it might not be this kind of very smoking gun kind of But I think just the fact that James Webb will be able to tell us how common the ingredients for life in an atmosphere are is going to be really revelatory. What type of of
0: things will it be able to detect as far as an atmosphere? Like if we were looked at, we could it would obviously we have, you know, pollution and, you know, all different things uh, that would show that there's actually life here. as long as it shows in the infrared, uh, it'll see
2: it. OK, it can't detect oxygen, by the way. It, it's not going to see oxygen, not directly. But when oxygen atoms collide with each other, they create byproducts. Those byproducts have a single a signal in the infrared. So the relative abundances of these collision products will show how much oxygen might be in an atmosphere. So just to, so you know about the, the James Webb. So I think that that process is something that's going to be exploited to the nth degree With these exoplanet studies
1: and it's not the only one that's what's exciting about this time is that obviously it's a it's you know amazing telescope but you have like so many amazing telescopes that are about to come online you've got you know obviously fast is really interesting and i think it's great um intelligence hunter and then you have like the square kilometer array that's going to be coming on in, in the next decade just the biggest radio array on earth and the Nancy Roman Telescope and the Extremely Large Telescope in Chile, like it's just a heyday right now. So, um, lots of answers, maybe not definitive ones, but certainly. <laughs> no, nah,
2: but that, that's all good though, Becky. You're absolutely you, you're right on the mark with that. I'll tell you. Well, well,
0: this has been wonderful. I've really enjoyed this conversation a lot. And Becky, are you reachable? Do you like people to reach out to you?
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I'm on Twitter, Becky Ferreira, um, and I uh, have my email up there, just Becky Ferreira advice. So always interested to hear what people think.
0: Oh, let's see. We have, uh, we have one more question up here. Let's see. Um, how this is, let's see. How does Europa have so much water and other moons of Jupiter have so much less water? And uh, is it the way it, the moon developed or something? Any ideas on that, Mark?
2: Oh, why, I, I, why you one me?
0: moon? Yeah. Oh, oh okay.
2: Well, I, I was I was waiting for Becky. I thought she was going to answer, but that's okay. Um,
1: no, it's a good question.
2: Okay. Uh, well, Europa is two thousand miles across, just under. So, relatively speaking, um, the amount of water that's there is probably less than what's on Ganymede. Okay. I mean, we have to look at the internal structure of Ganymede and Callisto to know. And it's not the only one. Keep in mind that the entire Kuiper Belt, way, way out, and the Oort Cloud beyond that, are made of all icy bodies, full of a lot of different types of ices, including H2O. You'll have carbon dioxide ices, you'll have methanol, you'll have all kinds of formaldehyde and stuff. But you're not going to find a dearth or a lack of this water ice anywhere. Water is very common. Hydrogen is very common. Hydrogen is the most abundant element in the entire universe. Oxygen is the third most abundant element in the universe. Next is carbon. So the top four are hydrogen, helium, oxygen, and carbon. So it stands to reason that we're going to get many, many different types of compounds made of those in my view. And, and water is one of them.
0: Interesting. Well, again, thank you both so much. It's been uh, my pleasure to talk to both of you.
1: It was well, nice to meet so you, Becky. Good, no, nice good to talking to you. Martin. Thank you so much for convening us, Martin. This is fantastic. This
0: is well, great. I hope you have uh, some wonderful stories to write about in the future. Including that we have discovered life somewhere. That'll be great to be able to and read that. Becky, maybe we can
2: collaborate on some things.
0: Don't tell Martin. Don't tell <laughs> <her>. <laughs> All right. Okay. Take care. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank bye. you, everyone. See so you next time.